let's look at our uh, message for today. As we've been talking about, we, we started this new year with a series called Rooted and Growing. And I was trying to think through today or this week what what exactly my my goals, what I sense from the Lord in this series. And I, I wrote down that it is to see with spiritual eyes in God's Word the essential nature of the church. We spent so much time last year with so many people questioning whether or not the church was essential, whether or not gathering and being together together was essential. And I just want us to see from God's Word. I, I don't want to try to convince you of anything. I want us to see from God's Word with spiritual eyes the essential nature of the church. And, and then in that, what I hope happens is we see that ourselves is that we began to understand God's purpose in joining us together. Why God does what He does. Why He has prescribed local communities of faith all over the globe in all times and nations together. Why has He prescribed that? What is His purpose in that? I want us to see that and I want us to grow in our longing to be a part of it. I I want you to come to church when we gather. And, and I realize even using that phrase, we are the church, but you know what I mean. I want us to come together. I want you to be here. I want you to be online if you can't be here in person. But more than that, I want you to want to come here. I want you to want to log on. I want in your heart to have an affection for being with the people of God. And, and I can't instill that in us. But I believe if the Lord will allow us to see with spiritual eyes His purpose in the local church and our place in it, that we will grow in our affection for being here, for being together. We've borrowed this metaphor Paul uses in Colossians 2. And I've expanded it a bit into this picture of this tree. There Paul talks about together we are to be rooted going deeper and deeper and deeper into the person and the Word of Jesus. And it is Jesus who nourishes us. It is Jesus who strengthens us. It is Jesus who gives us grace. And as Alex said, uh, and he was not at all comparing me to Jesus, by the way, so make sure no one made that mistake. But as Alex was saying, he's always working. We may not see that visibly. We may not even perceive it spiritually, but He's always working. And we want our roots, the roots of this church, to go down deeper and deeper into Him. And then as that happens, we grow up. We grow up together. We grow up, we grow out. Our branches go higher and further. And that is advancing in spiritual maturity and holiness. In righteousness, right living. And then together, as we grow up and we grow out, we long to produce fruit. Not just a little, but abundant fruit. And that fruit is the love and good works that brings glory to God and life to people. And so we're just spending time to look at His Word to see, how does God do this? What does that look like for us as a church? And we spent two weeks so far exploring Hebrews 10 and meditating on how the writer in Hebrews 10 talks about Jesus and 
Our salvation through Him is far superior to the Old Testament system that the believers in the Old Testament lived under. And because of that, because we have a superior system by which we, or a superior way by which we approach God, because of that, we have superior opportunities. We have opportunities as a church that the people of the Old Testament could only have dreamed about, could only have longed for, that anywhere, anytime, the Spirit of God is with us, and we can pray and seek Him. And it was not that way in the Old Testament when it came to worship. And so, now that we are rooted in Jesus, we have access to this new and better way of life with God. And because of that, this writer of Hebrews has exhorted us, go to God, take advantage of that, enter His presence with confidence and certainty. And we don't just do that individually, although certainly we do it as individual believers, but we do it as a community of faith. And that's why he instructed us, don't neglect being together. Don't make excuses to not be together. Don't put that at the bottom of your priority list. Actually, he says, increase the amount of time that you're together. More and more as you see the day coming of the return of Christ and of judgment, more and more increase being together. Find different ways and different places to be with other believers. And what he also tells us is that it is God's design in us being together that we would both give and receive a stirring up or a provoking that helps us to mature and bear fruit. It is God's purpose for us to be sanctified. And that is a community project. It is done by the work of the Holy Spirit, but it is God's design that it happens within a community. And therefore, it helps us to grow and to mature and to bear fruit, to be involved in fellowship with other believers And therefore, it hampers our growth when we're not. Josh Dean did a wonderful job last week. I had to go back and listen to the audio because the live stream wasn't working well at the time. But he did a wonderful job of helping us see the wonder and the beauty of being rooted in the person and the works of Jesus, who is our justification. But he also helped us to see, by my count, a dozen examples of what it looks like to actually provoke one another to love and good works. And some of those examples we're going to be talking about as we go through the series a little bit more. So, we've got a good base to start with from Hebrews 10. And and now what we want to do is we're going to start exploring together some of the specific attributes and purposes of the church community. And we're going to begin by spending a couple of weeks meditating on how we as a church are to be rooted and growing for worship. As a matter of fact, I'm going to try to make the case to you today that this is the primary purpose of the Christian life and of, therefore, the Christian church. And if we don't get this right, we won't get anything else right. 
And I hope we can see that today. I want to start with, if you have one of our worship guides and you enjoy taking notes, we've got some fill-in-the-blanks there if you want to use them. I want to start by just trying to define what, what worship is. So what is worship? Now, I am attempting to give us a working definition that we can use for this sermon. And so if you have a different theologically rich expression or definition of worship, I'm not saying that's wrong. I am saying that I want us to have a working definition that we can use to try and get an understanding of what worship is. And so I'm basing this on the original languages of Scripture. When you go and look for the word worship in the Old Testament, the New Testament, really what do you see? And so from that, I'm going to say a working definition for us is that worship is a bowing down in honor and adoration. Worship is a bowing down in honor and adoration. The word most commonly used in the Old Testament for worship implied a physical falling down in reverence. That was the implication of the word. And what we see, much of this Old Testament sacrificial system that we've talked about for the past two weeks involved a lot of external actions that were prescribed by God. And certainly it involved the external act of bowing down. And the purpose of bowing down was to attribute honor to God. And we see this happening especially in these prescribed rituals of the Old Testament and at the place God had commanded. Originally at the tabernacle, if you remember the tent that would move when the people of Israel moved, and eventually the temple, the structure that was built where God's presence dwelt. But if you really read the Old Testament Scriptures, something begins to unfold to you. That while the definition of worship implies a physical falling down in reverence, and while there are a lot of very specific external acts that were prescribed, and while it was supposed to happen at a certain location, but you began to see God interacting with His people and making it known that worship was not meant to be merely an external act. It is not merely meant to be something that we do as an action. Hosea 6.6 is one example that I will mention. But it is one of many passages that teaches God wants sacrifices that come from our hearts. Hosea the prophet said to the people of God, God directed him to say, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And God was not saying, do away with the system. It was not time for that yet. But He was saying, understand what the system is meant for. It's not just to do certain actions. But I want your heart I want you to love me. I want you to know me. I want you to have relationship with me. And of course, the problem that we're presented, and Josh made this clear last week as well from Hebrews, is that that Old Testament system of worship was powerless to change a person's heart. No matter how many times they did a ritual or a sacrifice, their heart could not be altered by that system. And we're going to talk about it in just a moment. A person's heart does not naturally want to love God or serve Him. 
And so that is why the Old Testament system and what we've looked at the last couple of weeks from Hebrews 10 and also Colossians chapter 2 says that that entire Old Testament system was a shadow of Jesus. Love that terminology. It wasn't the substance. It was the shadow of the substance. It was a shadow. You can imagine if you could find something this big, but you see the shadow first and you begin to look at it and follow it and walk in it to eventually get to what is casting the shadow. And that's the picture. Jesus was casting the shadow into the Old Testament and the sacrificial system there was the shadow. Jesus is the greater way to God because He has come to do what could not happen in the Old Testament. He's come to change our hearts. He's come to mold us. And so with the advent of Jesus in the New Testament, what we see is a broadening of what worship means. Not that the definition changes, but it broadens to what it was actually supposed to be. And we, we saw that in the reading that we did a few moments ago in the midst of worship in John 4. Specifically there, verse 23, as Jesus is discussing with this Samaritan woman, they're having a, a back and forth, and, and honestly, Jesus is talking to her about her life and about some sin issues and what she really loves more than anything else, and it makes her uncomfortable. So she does what a lot of us do when we're uncomfortable. She tries to change the subject. I see you're a prophet. Let's not really talk about me anymore. Let me engage you in a debate. And the most well-known debate between the Samaritans and the Jews, or at least one of the most well-known, was where should worship happen? So she asked Jesus the question, and Jesus says, understand, the hour is coming and actually it's, it's now here that true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and truth, not on this mountain or at the temple, but in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So Jesus affirms what we just said from Hosea 6, that God is seeking more than just a physical bowing down. He's seeking more than just external acts of sacrifice. And Jesus has now come to fulfill the Old Testament. Exactly what we looked at when we walked through the Sermon on the Mount. To take the Old Testament to its rightful aim. And so in Christ, in Christ, you can become the type of worshiper God seeks. And it is only in Christ that that can happen. And that worshiper is a person who bows in spirit. That teaches us that it's not just the outward form, but it's an internal change and it is an empowerment of the human heart by the Spirit of God. So it's a bowing of the Spirit. It's also a bowing in truth. And I was talking to Eric Cleveland this week and we were talking about some of these verses and Eric mentioned to me, I... I get the sense, and I haven't studied it, but I get the sense there truth means something more than just truth. And so that, that got me interested in looking into that word, and so I began to look into what that word is. And indeed, Eric perceived correctly that the word there for truth is not just talking about facts, not just talking about the Word of God, but actually it's talking about a love for the Word of God. 
It's not just truth, it's a love for truth. God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, having a love for truth. A worshiper is someone who not only keeps God's commands, but wants to keep God's commands. Who does not find His commands burdensome. Who loves the truth, even if if we realize we don't always obey it, even if we realize we struggle with it, but we love it. And we can say yes to what we read in His Word. So, I'm trying to help us see this view of worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament and how it's been transformed and changed. So, being born again by grace through faith in Jesus, which is the rooted... Being born again is the foundation for New Testament worship. And now, when you're rooted in Christ and born again, you grow up, you grow out, you mature, and you begin to understand that the bowing down in honor and adoration is not just physical, but it is something that happens in our hearts and our minds. Your inner person adores and honors God, and you will grow in that adoration and that honor. And you're satisfied in God, and you're satisfied in His Word. And so worship now becomes a non-localized internal experience. In other words, it's not merely centered on a place, and it's not merely centered on an external action, but this definition that we have of worship... We bow down in our spirits and our hearts and our minds in the honor and the adoration of God. And that is what Christ has done for us. That is what Christ has allowed. When we go to explain our purposes as a church, and I started to put, some of you know, we kind of have three concentric, overlapping, connecting circles that we use to explain our purpose. And I started putting the handout, but... ended up not doing it. But when we talk about our purpose as a church, we begin with the purpose of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. And that is worship. Our whole heart and mind bowed down to God in honor and adoration. And if we skip that, then we we miss out on the other purposes, and how to properly live them out. Because if we don't start there, nothing we do is sincere. Our other two purposes are to love other people as Christ has loved us. But if we don't truly love God, that love we have for others is very limited and will end up being very fleshly. We may end up loving them for what we might could receive from them. Or we only love them to a point, and then when they're not lovable anymore, we stop. It's only when we love God and we're bowed down to Him that we can do that properly. And making disciples. We could be a church that says our number one purpose is to make disciples. But if we're not doing that because we love God, then all we're looking for is a counter to be able to say how many people we've led to Christ in a year so that we can feel good about ourselves. 
If we try to love people and serve people without loving God, we end up mired in the social gospel that's concerned about feeding people and and helping them with physical needs, but not their spiritual needs. So the number one purpose we have as a church is to love God. To love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To worship Him. To be bowed down to Him. We join here on Sunday morning. I hope we join here and we're able to experience love for one another. I hope that disciples are made in this gathering, but the number one purpose of us coming together on the Lord's Day is to, as a church, love God together. It's the number one reason that we come together on Sunday. The pursuit of affection for God is the pursuit of right living. And by the way, religion gets that really wrong. Because religion says, live rightly, and, and maybe love will follow. And the Bible says, love God and pursue affection in Him, and right living will come. Because He's going to line things up. That's what Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1 defines spiritual worship as beginning to bow down in honor and adoration in every sphere of your life. Every moment, every avenue, you see as an opportunity to worship God. Whatever you're doing. If you have a career, that's not just for you to have money for your family and have purpose. It is something God has given you to use for His worship. Or a home, or a car, or a business, or a marriage, or children. He has given you what He has given you that it might in some way be for His worship. That you can take everything in your life and begin to lay it down to Him. To submit it to Him in honor and adoration. And this only happens when we grow in affection for Him. Because if we don't love God with all of our heart, then we're not even going to think that way. And when we're challenged at work or at home or in the marriage, we're, we're not going to receive the challenge and fight because our love for God isn't where it needs to be. So I hope you see the big picture. Working definition of worship, understanding the Old Testament view, the New Testament view, that's a very, very high level of what God has done. I want to try to now give a little bit of detail to what we've summarized I want to try to be a bit more specific with four truths about worship that some of these we just looked at, but I want to look at them in a little bit more detail. Number one, four truths about worship. Number one, God initiates worship. God initiates worship. What that means is worship is not a man-created concept. God didn't make us for some secondary or aimless purpose and, and somehow we just figured out, oh, you know what? We should just love Him for that. Let's, let's worship. No, God created us for worship. Genesis says we were created as His image bearer. What's the purpose of an image? You know, a photo or if you come across some historic marker, 
or painting that bears someone's image, what is the purpose of that? It is to reflect or remind you or teach you about the actual substance that that image represents. Image bearers are meant to reflect the beauty and the value of God, to reflect His character. It's what He put us here for. And when He told us in Genesis, when He told man, spread out over all the earth, He was saying, take my beauty and my value and my character everywhere. Fill the earth with my image. That's what we were meant to do. And that was not just a command that God gave us. And and by the way, He had every right to make us and command us to do that as servants, and and we should have done it. But it wasn't just a command for us to serve. It was a command for our joy. We were made to worship God. We were made to enjoy the beauty of God and enjoy sharing that beauty wherever we go. That was what He made us for. And we spend, many people spend their whole lives trying to find satisfaction in anything but God. And it will never happen because we were made for one purpose, worship, His glory, to bow down in honor and adoration. And that's, that's when we're most satisfied. We're most satisfied when we're doing what we were created to do. So God initiates worship, but what happened? Well, sin corrupts worship. If worship is a bowing down to what we honor and adore, then we need to understand that it is possible for our worship to be focused on the wrong object. I intentionally didn't put in the working definition that worship is a bowing down in honor and adoration to God, although that is the true definition of worship. But I I want us to know that it is possible to worship that which is not God. And that is what happened in the fall of man. If you really go to the core of what happened with Adam and Eve, it was a rejection of God as the most satisfying thing. Where God said, I've created you to enjoy all of this and to enjoy me and to be my image bearers, and in that you will be satisfied. And in the fall, man said, no. I think I can find more satisfaction elsewhere. I think I can find more satisfaction in what you've made. Specifically in what you made that you told me don't go near. Sin is a pursuit of something that we find more valuable than God. In Romans chapter 1 verse 25 depicts the heart of men as desiring to worship and serve what was created rather than the Creator. And that is not worship, it is idolatry. And it's deadly. And we just have to be real with ourselves. We all struggle with idolatry. We don't always think of it as an idol. But we struggle finding our satisfaction in something that isn't God. 
We struggle with making things, created things, idols. And so we have to be aware that our nature is one that longs to worship what's been created. And that is sin and it corrupts worship. It corrupts pure worship. And if we're not aware of our idolatrous tendencies and we don't chase after that in confession and repentance and pursuit of God, then we will end up with impure worship. Now here's the good news. The good news is that the ability to come to a place of pure worship is not just found in us realizing what we're doing and overcoming it in our strength. The good news is that not only does God initiate worship, but God works to bring His people back to worship. God works on our behalf to bring us to a place of worship because He loves us. Isaiah 43 foretells that God will redeem His people and that in their redemption, those that He has formed, those that He has created for His glory, He will call them by name and He will call them back to sincere worship. And if you are in this room and you are rooted in Christ, that is what He has done in your life. He formed you and made you for His glory and for His worship. It was corrupted by sin, but He has pursued you and He has redeemed you. He has called you by name and He is calling you to come back to sincere worship and it comes through His Son. The third truth about worship is Jesus purifies worship. God initiates it, sin corrupts it, but Jesus purifies our worship. You look at the sermon text from this morning that Alex read in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now what I love about this text is verse 11 affirms what most of us understand grace to be. What is grace? It's the kindness of the Lord. It has appeared to save us. But then, if you have any thought of, well, that means that God's not concerned with right living or godliness. It's because you didn't read any further. So let's keep going. It's appeared, grace has, to bring salvation and to train us to renounce what is ungodly, to renounce worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That's why Paul would often end his letter saying, grace to you. What is he saying? Is he saying, you need to get saved? No, he's saying, grace, may grace come to you. May the grace that has come to you and saved you, may that grace be with you now to help you live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Pray for the grace of God every day. That helps you to live a life of worship. While we wait, verse 13, for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 14. Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us, as Isaiah 43 said, from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So think of the abundant fruit the love and the good works we're trying to provoke one another to as we grow up and grow out. Jesus came to purify our worship 
and make us zealous for those good works. So that corrupted worship from sin, Jesus purifies it. He comes to free us from idolatry, to free us from the idea that we are only satisfied by created things. He has come to make us zealous for this bowing down and an adoration to God. And as we saw from Hebrews 10, this pure worship to God is something that we are perfected in, but we're growing in. And the fact that we're growing in it brings us to number four, and that is that the Spirit empowers worship. God initiates it, and sin corrupts it, and Jesus purifies us. And it is the Spirit of God, the active, living, powerful presence of God that empowers us to worship. The Spirit of God is helping us to grow up, to be sanctified, to be mature and holy. And so as He matures our hearts, our worship becomes more pure. But in John 16, Jesus says something about the Spirit of God that is so profound. He says to us, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. That was the promise of Jesus. I'm going away, but the Spirit will come. The Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. And guess what? When you look at the word truth, it doesn't just mean His Word. The same as we saw from John 4, it means a love for His Word. The Spirit of God comes to our lives to not only lead us into all the truth of God, but to lead us to love the truth of God. And to be worshipers that God seeks, worshipers of spirit and truth, we must rely on the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth and to love of that truth. So, big picture summary of working definition of worship, a view of the Old Testament, New Testament, detailing some of what we've looked at, and I want to end with three thoughts about our corporate worship gatherings. And everything we've been talking about is kind of geared on the individual life of the believers, but I want you to understand that even with the definition from Romans 12, spiritual worship is the bowing down of our whole life to God, that throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is clear that God purposes for His people to come together to magnify and adore Him. And I want to implore you to come to these discipleship groups. It's not just to come and learn the Bible. It is to come and magnify and adore God with other believers. What I want you to be affectionate for, what I want to be affectionate for on a Sunday morning is not just seeing friends and people that we love. That's awesome. Not just coming into a plush and luxurious building like we have here. It's a joke. It's not, it's not for just good things that may be peripheral. What I want us to have an affection for is I can't wait to be with this community God has put me in and adore God with them and magnify God with them. Because you know what? I love my individual life of worship every day, but 
when I'm with other believers, when I'm in with the community of Agape and we're magnifying God together, that stirs my heart, stirs my spirit. That's what I want us to be affectionate for. And I want you to know that that gathering is an essential act of the church. There may be times where we can't be in person, so we use other ways for it to happen. But whether we're at home or here, we need to prepare our hearts because what we're doing together in magnifying and adoring Christ is an essential act of the church. So three factors that impact our worship gatherings, and and these are things that we're going to actually talk more about next week, especially number three. But three factors that impact our worship gathering. Number one, it's the movement of God on behalf of His people. God initiates worship and He works for our worship. And the number one factor when we come together is that we need God to move. We need God to be active among us. And we know God is with us. He's with us. He's in us. That passage that people like to... We quote, and it's a good passage, where two or three are gathered, I am there. But that doesn't mean He just shows up when there's two or three That passage actually is talking about something a little different. But when we come together, the presence and the Spirit of God is in us, but we're asking Him to move on us. We're asking God to work to bring worship out from us and to help us to do it in a pure and right way. Every Sunday, the... There are people who gather in this room over here in the prayer room about 15 minutes before the countdown. And it's leaders, but I I say this all the time, anyone's welcome to come. We would love for other people to come. But what we're doing in that room is praying for the movement of God in this gathering. Because that's the number one thing that we need. The second factor that impacts our worship gatherings is the personal worship life of the community. The personal worship life of the community. I put the first factor as the movement of God because nothing else matters if God doesn't move. But there are other things that impact our gatherings. God can overcome these things, but still they impact our gathering. And one of them is the personal worship life of the community. If this is the only time during your week that you humble yourself and adore God then that will impact not only your worship in this place, but others, other people's worship in this place. Because we're called to stir one another up, provoke one another to love and good works. God can overcome that. But absolutely, your own personal worship impacts when you're around other believers. Josh said last week, I was talking about how, and he was specifically talking about being in the Word, so I'm just going to, Take that a little further and say not just the Word, but worship all of your life, bowing down. So worship in the Word, worship in prayer. But Josh said that the reason that we should want to be in the Word is not only to build our own selves up, but so that when we are together with other people, we could build them up with the Word. So I'm just going to say the reason that we should want to be in worship personally throughout the week is so when we come together, we can build others up. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, which we'll probably talk about 1 Corinthians 14 again. But 
Paul instructs the church. He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all these things or all things be done to build up. Now, I, my personal belief and interpretation of this passage is not that that means that when you come to a corporate gathering, every person just takes turn coming up and, and delivering something. What I do think it means is that when we're living lives of worship, God is giving each of us a hymn, a lesson, a word, a revelation, a tongue, the ability to interpret that tongue. And so when we're together, we're sharing those things. We're building one another up when we're in the body of believers. So if we're disconnected from worship, we have nothing to give. Now, we should still come and receive and let God fill us. But our personal lives of worship impact the community. And then finally, a factor that impacts the community is the structure of the gathering, the form. And we're going to hone in on this next week. So I'm just going to end saying, it matters what we do when we come together for corporate worship. What we do, what we give our time to, what we give our energy to, everything, when we gather, it matters. It impacts it. Can God use anything? Yes. But are there certain things that God has prescribed that more leans themselves or lends themselves to His worship? Yes. And we want to engage in that which is the most excellent when we're together. And that is important. So we're going to continue this next week. John, you can come up. And Rob, if you'll get ready. And you can bring the lights down. I want us to, I want us to spend some time praying as a church. And we're going to end in baptism in just a moment. But I want us to pray through and listen, let me say this. This is part of what I mean by it matters what we do. We'll talk about it more next week, but like this isn't just something now like we're going to do because, you know, you got to find a way to land the plane. And so, you know, prayer seems good. No, we start with prayer over the Word, and now we're going to end with prayer in response to the Word. We're still worshiping together. So now is a time to reflect and think about what God is showing us in the Word. And it may be a time for you to come and gather with other believers to pray about something specific God's laid on your heart or something specific that one of the leaders feels like we should be focused on because of this. It's one of the reasons that I have someone else come up and lead this time. What they're doing is listening for what God may be saying and then coming and directing that. What do we need to pray about? But I want to say, first and foremost, church, understand, nothing about worship matters if you don't know Jesus. If He hasn't redeemed you, then everything you do is just external acts. And they may look good, they may fool people, they may fool yourself. Please know that you've been redeemed by Christ. Please know that if you can see your sin and what separates and corrupts worship and causes you to long for idolatry, Christ has come to forgive you 
to free your heart and to change your affections. And it requires faith. Believe. Believe He's done that. Believe He will do that. And then find someone in this room before you leave to say, either I do believe and I want to talk more about that or I've got questions. Let me know that or Rob or Nick. Any of the leaders before you leave today, let us know that. I want to talk about where I am spiritually. Let's reflect on God's Word together, Rob, if you'll come. Let's pray together and then we're going to celebrate in baptism.